morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I want to talk to you this morning about the sons of God and the Nephilim. Now let's begin by looking at these four verses in Genesis. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, this is no doubt a strange passage, and there's a lot of disagreement over it. I think the interpretation of these verses hinges upon the definition of three key terms. So when we get these terms right, we're going to understand what this text is saying. First of all, verses 2 and 4 talks about the sons of God. Who are they? We need to understand that. Then 2 and 4 also talks about the daughters of men. We need to define who these are. And then the third term is the Nephilim. So if we can define these key terms, we're going to understand this passage. And I think without that, you're never going to get this thing right. And to do this, we need to apply some of the principles of hermeneutics. We need to use the analogy of Scripture. We need to determine carefully the meaning of words. Let me begin by sharing with you something that Edmund Spencer said that I think is a good quote. He says, There is a principle which is bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance. Know what the principle is? Condemnation before investigation. In other words, condemn it, write it off, forget about it. It just sounds too crazy. Don't investigate. So let's attempt to keep an open mind as we examine the text. There's three major interpretations of this text of Genesis 6, and I'm going to attempt to describe them briefly. I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I want to begin with that which in my mind is the least likely, and ending with the view that I think is most likely, which is the view I hold, and I hold it because I think it's most likely. All right. First of all, we have the Sethite view. The sons of Seth are generally said by those who hold this view to be the godly men of the line of Seth. All right, they're saying that the sons of God are Sethites, which is really a stretch to start with, okay? <clears throat> the daughters of men are thought to be the daughters of the ungodly line of Cain, and the Nephilim are the ungodly and violent men who are the product of this unholy union. All right, this non-supernatural view, and two of these views are non-supernatural. The view I hold of the Watchers is a supernatural view, And it really seems to me today that a lot of people are removing the supernatural from the Scriptures. You know, in our day, we have a scientific explanation for everything. In the time the Bible was written, everything was supernatural. Everything that happened. Now we've gotten to the other side of the world, it just seems like nothing is supernatural. Well, this non-supernatural view of the sons of God as human beings began in the Christian world with Julius Africanus. It gripped the Western church through the support of Augustine, later Luther, Calvin, and Aquinas. Julius Africanus states the basic principle of this view when he says, The descendants of Seth are called the sons of God on account of the righteous men and patriarchs who have sprung from him, even down to the Savior himself. But that the descendants of Cain are named the seed of men as having nothing divine in them on account of the wickedness of their race 
and inequality of their nature, being a mixed people and having stirred the indignation of God. Now, the supporters of this view will use verses like Genesis 4, uh, 26, that says, To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of Yahweh. See, the supporters of this interpretation will say that the picture here is that in context, Seth's line called upon Yahweh. But the Hebrew text of this verse does not say that Seth's line called upon Yahweh, but only that there was a general calling on the name of Yahweh. The Jewish Targum even interpreted the Hebrew behind began to call upon the name of Yahweh as actually meaning began to make idols and calling their idols by the name of Yahweh. That's quite a difference from the text, isn't it? I mean, we're not sure which one of these are true, but I mean, they take a very different view of this text. It's the opposite understanding. Well, to add to this, Brown, Driver, and Briggs Hebrew lexicon reveals that the word began here, which is the Hebrew halal, can mean pollute, defile, profane, or desecrate. So if you claim that the context of Genesis 4.26 is Sethite, then those Sethites were not considered righteous but wicked. But whether this was a profaning of or a calling upon Yahweh, the text doesn't link it exclusively to Seth's line, but the people in general. The problem with this view are multiple. First, the contrast between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain is way overemphasized. The line of Seth as a whole was not godly. And we can prove that. You get the impression from Scripture, very few people were godly. How many ended up on the boat? Alright, no one his family could be called righteous at that time. So if this line's all godly, why weren't they on the boat? All the names given in the Canaanite genealogy in Genesis 5 are also found in the Sethite genealogy in the same chapter. The genealogies overlap, so their lines are not that distinct. The Sethite view implies that all the women of Cain's line were ungodly, whereas all the men of Seth's line were godly. Isn't that a stretch? you got all ungodly women and all godly men. You know, nah, come on. Really? <clears throat> Alright, secondly, this interpretation doesn't provide definitions that arise from within the passage or even adapt well to the text. And this is very important. Nowhere are the Sethites called sons of God. I mean, you got to just take that and put it on there apart from Scripture. In fact, every single use of sons of God elsewhere in the Tanakh is always a reference to spirit beings. Always. Seth is never called the son of God. In the Tanakh, his birth was uniquely described as, it says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So Seth is distinctly described in terms of being a son of Adam, not a son of God. Now, I'll deal more with who the sons of God are in a minute here. Thirdly, the daughters of men can hardly be restricted to only the daughters of the Canaanites. In Genesis 6, Moses wrote, It came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful. The Sethite view requires giving the word men, which is the Hebrew word Adam, in verse 1 and 2, two different meanings. Now, how does that 
fit in this text. Men and daughters in verse 1 would refer to all mankind. (coughs) All mankind and their daughters. But daughters of men in verse 2 would refer to Canaanite women. So the term Adam would have to mean mankind in 6.1, but a specific group of mankind, Canaanites, in 6.2. You know, it's difficult to conclude that the men here were not men in general or mankind. It would follow that the reference to their daughters would be equally general. To conclude that the daughters of men in verse 2 is some different, more restrictive group is to ignore the context of the passage. Daughters of men are simply women. The daughters of Adam include the bloodlines of both Cain and Seth. So for the contrast, sons of God and daughters of men. And that's the contrast. We got sons of God, saw daughters of men. If that's going to make sense, the sons of God cannot be a reference to human lineage of Cain, but a lineage of something that contrasts with human beings in general. There's a contrast going on here. And fourthly, and to me this is a a very strong argument also, how does human-human relationship produce Nephilim? How do you get one line of Cain, one line of Seth, they get together and they produce Nephilim, which elsewhere in the Bible are defined as Giants. From all appearance, the Nephilim giants and the mighty men, Gibberim, are the offspring of the marriages of the sons of God and the daughters of men. As Klein says, it is not at all clear why the offspring of a religiously mixed marriages should be Nephilim. That doesn't make any sense at all, right? However these be understood within the range of feasible interpretation, but his, the biblical author's reference to the conjugal act and to childbearing finds justification only if he is describing the origin of the Nephilim gibberim. Unless the difficulty which follows from this conclusion can be overcome, the religiously mixed marriage interpretation of the passage ought to definitely be abandoned. I agree. Fifthly, to hold the Sethite view, you also have to believe that Peter and Jude got it wrong. We'll expound on this in a minute. For these reasons and others, I see this view as exegetically unacceptable. It fails to submit to the laws of interpretation. But, you know, when you want to get away from the supernatural view, you've got to come up with something. All right, secondly, the despot view. The earliest date for this view is the mid-2nd century A.D. This view developed in rejection of the idea that angels could engage in sexual intercourse. They didn't didn't like that idea. It just sounded a little bit too weird. So recognizing the deficiencies of the Sethite view, some scholars sought to define the expression sons of God by comparing it with the language of the ancient Near East. It's interesting to learn that some rulers were identified as sons of a particular god. For example, in Egypt, the king was called the son of Ra, the sun god. As a major proponent of this view, Meredith Klein suggests that the union of the sons of God with daughters of men was polygamous marriage of a tyrant king. All right? And those holding this view would say, well, the last of Cain's line mentioned before this event was Lamech, who was a bigamist and a tyrant. And the first gibberim on the earth after the flood was Nimrod, another tyrant who was connected to that adulterous city, the Tower of Babel. They say that the sin of the sons of God was polygamy. Polygamy, that's that's the sin that's being talked about here. You know, while it's true that ancient pagan kings did consider themselves the offspring of deity, 
or demigods. Nowhere in the Bible is the term sons of God used in reference to such rulers. Nowhere. The definition chooses to ignore the precise definition given in the Scriptures. This text is not saying that polygamy is a heinous sin that inherently breeds monsters of tyranny and caused God to destroy the world. David was a polygamist. And he gave birth to both good and bad seed through his many wives. As did his son Solomon, another polygamist. The Messiah came through the lineage of polygamists. So that's, again, a big stretch. Further, the whole idea of power-hungry men seeking to establish a dynasty by acquisition of a harem seems forced on this passage. I mean, who in the world would ever read this passage and say, oh, this is talking about polygamy. Polygamous kings, you know. You will never get that out of this passage if it's not forced upon it. Now, this view does define the daughters of men correctly as simply women. And not just daughters of the Canaanite line. Of course, daughters come from men. Where else would daughters come from? There's simply no need to say that men were giving birth to daughters unless the point of the contrast is the identity of them as human. The major weakness of this view is the inability to account for the unusual offspring again. The Nephilim. How do kings, having a whole bunch of wives, produce giants? Doesn't make any sense. While the despot view maybe does less violence to the text than does the Sethite view, it seems to be very inadequate. That brings you to my view, which is the watcher view, a supernatural view. According to this view, the sons of God in verse 2 and 4 were rebellious divine beings from God's heavenly host called watchers, which took the form of masculine human-like creatures. These gods, and that's what they were, they were gods with a little g, married women of the human race, either Canaanite or Sethites, thus violating the heavenly earthly division that Yahweh had established. Now the hybrid offspring of this abominable union were giants called Nephilim. Nephilim were giants with physical superiority and therefore established themselves as men of renown for their physical power and military might. Now, you can understand how Nephilim would be giants if you got a god for a father and a woman for a mother. But it doesn't make any sense in anything else. The race of half-human creatures was wiped out by the flood, along with mankind in general who were sinners in their own right. Now, my basic presupposition in approaching this text is that we should let the Bible define its own terms. Scripture interprets Scripture. If biblical definitions can't be found, then we need to look into the language of the culture of contemporary peoples and see if we can understand it. But the Bible does define these terms, so we don't need to go to the cultures. The Bible defines sons of God very clearly, I think, in Scripture. Chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Job show two instances of the divine council composed of the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, Gathering in heaven for a meeting of the council. So Yahweh, you know, that's, that's a strange idea for most Christians. Yahweh has a council of gods that he gets together and meets with. Not that he needs advice. It's a family. We need to think of it that way. This is the family of God. They're gathered together around the throne. We see pictures of this in the scripture. If you want more information on that, go look at the first five messages on uh, spiritual warfare. And I talk more about that there. But let's look at the sons of God. Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came 
to present themselves before Yahweh. This is going on in heaven, people. And Satan came along with them. Now, we did a series. This is part of the series also. Satan, Hasatan, is the adversary. That's all it means. It's not a bad guy back here. He wasn't a bad guy in the Tanakh. Job 2.1 Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan came along with them to present himself before Yahweh. So we see these two instances of the council coming together. Then Job 38, we see this term again. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He's talking about creation here. The beginning of creation. He says, tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? God is, you know, kind of being sarcastic here to Job. You, you know everything, Job, right? Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Morning star and sons of God are names of divine council members used throughout Scripture. Now, some folks see sons of God as humans. But please explain to me how humans were present at creation. Tell me how that happens. This is the creation account. And there's humans being, I mean, there's these, you know, humans there shouting for joy. No, these are the council members. They're shouting for joy as Yahweh creates. Now, this term, sons of God, is only found five times in the New American Standard Bible. We looked at twice in Genesis, three times in Job, but it's also found an additional time in the English Standard Version, which I believe is a correct translation. It says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, the English translations based on the traditional Hebrew text of the Tanakh have here sons of Israel instead of sons of God. But this variant reading of the passage used by the English Standard Version is based on a 3rd century B.C. translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. So the Septuagint here has sons of God, not sons of Israel. So also does the Hebrew manuscripts of Deuteronomy found in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. They both have God here, not Israel. I think the text was changed to Israel. See, chapter 10 of Genesis is the background here of this text. The table of nations. This is the background for Moses' statement here of Yahweh being responsible for the creation and placement of the nations. It says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Yahweh, there were 70 nations. Yahweh took these gods and placed them over the nations. You, the nations have been rejecting Him. He says, fine. You don't want me, you want these other gods, you can have them. He gave those gods and He started all over in chapter 12. He called Abraham. Now, Israel's his people. And from there on out, you hear, I am Israel's God. Yahweh, the God of Israel. Those nations have their, those people have their gods. I'm Israel's God. Alright? And it's important to note that Israel's not listed in the index of the 70 nations in Genesis 10. And that makes sense because they didn't exist. They didn't come into existence until chapter 12 when God called Abraham. Couldn't exist. Before that time. So Israel's not a good translation. It mean, it should be sons of God. <clears throat> now, the phrase sons of God here, as I said, is B'nai Elohim. And here's something that is very important. You've got to get this. This is crucial. 
all uses of Elohim in the Tanakh refer to spiritual beings. Alright? If you can prove me wrong on this, it would be a good step to overthrowing my view. Alright? There is one time in Scripture where a man is called Elohim. Who is that? Anyone know? It's Samuel. You know why he's called Elohim? Because he's dead. He is no longer in the physical realm. Okay? He's in another realm. So he is called Elohim. Elohim is only used of those in the spirit world which Samuel is at that time, so he is called Elohim. They're not in the physical realm. Michael Heiser. You've heard me talk about him. Let me tell you a little bit about Heiser just so his quote have some force to it, alright? He's a Bible scholar, not a theologian, not a teacher, not someone with an internet site. Okay? You know what I'm saying? He's a scholar who has a PhD in Hebrew Bible and ancient Semitic languages. He does translation work in roughly a dozen ancient languages. Among them, Biblical Hebrew, Biblical Greek, Aramaic, Syriac, Egyptian hieroglyphics, Phoenician, Moabite, and Ugaric cuneiform. Okay? So he knows a little bit about what he's talking about. He says this, Elohim is a place of residence locator. Meaning that Elohim is only used of those in the spirit world. Now I searched high and low through the scriptures looking at this and I found a text that I thought he was wrong about. But I wrote him and he wrote me back and he showed me some things in that text that I wasn't seeing and I had to agree with him. The term Elohim only used of those in spirit world. So that kind of rules out the Sethite view, alright? Now the term Elohim appears in Canaanite literature contemporary with the biblical world, also to speak of divine beings. In Daniel 4, these sons of God are called watchers. The non-canonical book of 1st Enoch has a lot to say about these fallen watchers and their sin of cohabitation and judgment. Now, a lot of people say, you know, Enoch, well, that's not Scripture. You're right, it's not Scripture. I'm not saying Enoch is Scripture, but I'm saying it's contemporary in the first century and the Jews counted on Enoch heavily. The New Testament quotes Enoch and alludes to Enoch over and over, which gives it some validity. Alright, well, let's look at a couple of quotes here. First Enoch 6.1 And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. Sound like Genesis? And the angels, the children of heaven, so here we see that Enoch understands these sons of God as angels. Children of heaven, they're not human. Saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let's choose us wives from among the children of men and beget children. That sounds just like Genesis 6, basically giving us a kind of a commentary there. Enoch 7.1 And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go unto them and to defile themselves with them. Now, how are they defiling themselves? Well, they're violating the heaven and earth. Separation here. And they taught them charms and enchantments and cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. And they became pregnant and they bear great giants. Now note that, that they're having giants here. So you see how Enoch interprets this Nephilim as giants. Whose height was 3,000 L's, who consumed all the acquisitions of men 
and the men could no longer sustain them. The giants turned against them and devoured mankind, and they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and to drink the blood, and the earth laid acquisition against the lost ones. These these giants are out of control, killing men, drinking men's blood. You know, some of the things talk about. I mean, these were some wicked men. But did you notice also, let me back up a couple slides here. Um, it says in the bottom there, and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. And they get, you know, they're teaching, the watchers are teaching humans a lot of things that humans didn't know. Very interesting, I think. We'll come back to that someday. First Enoch 9.8. And they have gone to the daughters of men upon the earth and have slept with them, women, and have defiled themselves and revealed to them all kinds of sins. Isn't this interesting? The watchers are teaching men sin. And the women have borne giants again. They interpret this as these Nephilim as giants. And the whole earth has thereby been filled with the blood and unrighteousness. All right. So the sons of God are spirit beings. Who came to earth, they mated with human women, and they produced hybrid offspring, which Yahweh destroyed in the flood. Genesis never specifies how many angels descended, what their names are, or where they arrived, when they descended. But the book of the Watchers, which is the first book of Enoch, fills in all these narrative gaps. It states that there were 200 angels, gives the names of their 20 chiefs, and asserts that they arrived to earth from heaven upon Mount Hermon, which was a good place since it's the tallest mountain in Palestine and would be the closest to heaven. So it talks about their descent upon this mountain. Now, Robert Newman has analyzed the history of interpretation of this passage to show that the supernatural interpretation, the one I'm talking about, the watchers, the supernatural interpretation of the sons of God as being heavenly angelic beings was virtually unanimous in the ancient world until the first century after Christ. In other words, everybody believed this until the first century. There wasn't other views. This was the norm. Now, this was the dominant view among Jewish and Christian thinkers until the fourth century A.D. when Augustine championed an alternative view. It was also the exclusive view until the mid-2nd century A.D., it appears the early Jewish works that uh, it appears in the early Jewish works that comment on the stories of Genesis. It's in Enoch, it's in Jubilees, the Septuagint, Philo, Josephus, the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as works of early Christian scholars such as Justin, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexander, Tertullian, Origen. They all talk about this view. It was the dominant view. That doesn't make it right, but everybody believed this view. Now it's like no one believes it, okay? But at one time, the church held to this. Many commentators say that what happened here, in this, who believe in this, okay, say what happened here was rape. These watchers left heaven and just raped a bunch of women. The problem is, that's not what the text says, okay? It says they took wives for themselves whom they chose. First of all, it doesn't say they raped, they took wives. Well, they just went and took them. Right? I mean, that sounds violent. That sounds like they just went down. Well, yeah, if you're reading it in English, right? Took here is the Hebrew word lacha, which is used in other places in the Tanakh of proper, respectable marriages. 
Whatever happened here was consensual. It wasn't rape. Let's look at some of the other uses of lacha. Uh, Genesis 11.29. Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves in the name of Abraham's wife of Sarai. Alright? There's nothing wrong there, right? It's a Hebrew word, lacha, which they just took. You know, a wife. That's the normal way. Now, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. Deuteronomy 24.5 When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Well, that's awesome. couple gets married, take a year off. Get to know one another, have some fun, enjoy yourselves. Great thing, right? I guess the parents support them during that time. I'm not sure what happens there, but here takes and taken are both lacha, referring to the proper, respectable marriages. The daughters of men were not raped, they were not seduced as such, they simply chose husbands on the basis that the watchers select, the same basis that the watchers selected them, which was physical appeal. Now, if you were an eligible woman in those days, who would you choose? Some scrawny man or a god to be your husband. So these divine beings come to earth, they marry these human women, and they have offspring of hybrid children. Now, one of the primary passages that's said to be problematic to this view, people always quote from Matthew, where our Lord says this in Matthew 22, But Yeshua answered and said to them, You're mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriages, but are like angels in heaven. Now, Yeshua compares here men in heaven to angels in heaven. Neither men nor angels are said to be sexless in heaven, but we're told that in heaven there's no marriage. There's no female angels with whom angels can generate offspring. Angels were never told to be fruitful and multiply as man was. This text, and the, the main important thing about this text you have to understand, it's talking about dead people. Read previously in the text. Everybody died. All the people died in the resurrection. Who will they be? So they're talking about the afterlife. They're not talking about this life. Whose wife will they be? So this is questioning the afterlife. This is not talking about what angels can and can't do. It doesn't say they're sexless. None of that stuff. All right? But you know, when we find angels described in the book of Genesis, what are they always described as? Men. Do you ever see a, a lady angel in the Bible? Now, Christmas time, when you put the angels on the tree, they're always women, right? And we always think of women as angels. No, angels are always men in the Bible. So, we find the angels described in the book of Genesis, and it's clear they can assume a human-like form, always as men. There are many examples in scriptures of angels, and even God taking human form. In Genesis 18.1, God and the angels eat a meal, right? They sit down together and they have a meal. Something they really don't need to do as spirit beings, right? People say, angels can't have sex. Can they eat? Obviously, they sat down and had a meal here. A spirit being, where does it go? Just fall right through here or what? No, they took on some kind of human form. The writer of the Hebrews mentions that angels can be entertained without men knowing it. Because they take on a human form. Certainly they must be convincingly, they look like men. They look so much like men 
that the homosexual men in Sodom were attracted to them, right? In the New Testament, two passages seem to refer to this incident in Genesis 6, and they support the watcher view. And this is a one thing you really got to get over is these New Testament texts. Jude 1, 6, and 7. The angels who did not keep their own domain, what's that? That's heaven. That's where they belong. But abandoned their proper abode. Oh, what the heck are they doing? They're leaving heaven, right? He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way in these indulged in gross immorality. So here we see angels abandoning their proper abode. The word abode here is the Greek word oiketerion, and it means residence. They left heaven, they came to earth, because of this they were judged. It says, these indulge in gross immorality. Now, does these refer to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Or does it refer to the angels? If it goes back to angels, he's linking their sin to a sexual sin, and that's Genesis 6. Now, grammar tells us that it is the angels due to gender and number agreement. Pronouns need to agree with gender, number, and case with their antecedent. The word these is from the Greek tautois, which is masculine plural, and angels is masculine plural, but cities is feminine and does not agree grammatically. So it is saying that these angels indulged in gross immorality. What's that? That's Genesis 6, right? And went after strange flesh. Are exhibited as an example in the undergoings the punishment of eternal fire. Now hang on to this idea of strange flesh. We'll come back to this in a minute. But let's look at what Peter has to say in 2 Peter 2, 4-6. through For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, again, we got angels sinning, but cast them into hell and committed that, that's not hell there, Tartarus is the Greek, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of those who would live ungodly lives hereafter. Now, both of these passages speak of the same angels who sinned before the flood of Noah and who were committed to chains of gloomy darkness. It's interesting, if this is hell, how is it dark? Most of the time, fire brings light, doesn't it? 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20 calls these imprisoned angels disobedient. Now, according to our study, the angelic sons of God are spoken of as sinning in Genesis 6. So these must be the same angels referred to by the authors of the New Testament. But just what is their sin? Both Peter and Jude link the sin of the fallen angels with the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is described as indulge in gross immorality, going after strange flesh. Now, the Greek word for gross immorality is ek pornuo. It indicates a heightened form of sexual immorality. And the Greek word for strange flesh here is heteros sarx, which indicates the pursuit of something different from one's own natural flesh. This strange flesh can't be a reference to homosexuality. All right? For several reasons. First, 
homosexuality is not the pursuit of hetero or different gender. It's the pursuit of homo or the same gender. Secondly, homosexual behavior involves the same human male flesh, not different flesh as it would with angels. Now, let me be real clear here. This is one of the questions I got here. I am not saying that Sodom and Gomorrah were not judged for homosexuality. They were. I'm saying the text here in Jude and Peter is not a reference to homosexuality. All right? When the New Testament refers to the unnaturalness of homosexual acts, it uses the Greek word parafusis, which means contrary to nature. See, the Bible condemns homosexuality as a sin. All right? We clear on that? Homosexuality is a sin. But the sin of Sodom that is referenced here in Jude and Peter is not homosexuality. Alright, I'm saying what Peter and Jude are talking about is not homosexuality. They're, Sodom was judged for that, but that's not what they're talking about. The thing they're talking about is interspecies sexuality. That's a new word for you to write down, okay? Interspecies sexuality between humans and angels, between the two realms of the spirit world and the fleshly world. So the New Testament commentary on Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which is Jude and Peter, affirms the supernatural view of the sons of God having sex with humans. The letter of Jude not only quotes a verse from the first Enoch, but Jude 6 and 7 and 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10, both paraphrase context from first Enoch thus supporting the notion that the inspired authors intended an Enochian interpretation of angels and watchers. This confirms the supernatural view. They saw the sons of God as having sexual intercourse with humans. Jude and Peter are alluding to a common understanding of their culture that the angelic sin and its hybrid fruit of giants was an unnatural sexual violation of the divine human. Separation. Now, he talks about the Nephilim. The result of the union between the fallen watchers and women is rather clearly implied to be Nephilim. The meaning of the biblical word Nephilim has been a matter of unending controversy in church history because the word is not translated in most English Bibles. It's transliterated. Nephilim is a Hebrew word. They just took the Hebrew word, stuck it in there. What are they saying? We don't know what this means. We're not even going to touch it. We're just going to leave it the Hebrew word. You figure it out. All right? While word studies have produced numerous suggestions for the meaning of the term, the biblical definition of this word comes from its use. Remember we talked about usage? takes precedence over etymology. Where else is this used? Only one other time, and that's in Numbers 13. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so were we in their sight. Why were they grasshoppers in the sight of the Nephilim? Because they were giants. And so they saw these giants, and they said, we're like grasshoppers. Now, listen, please understand, this is an exaggeration. Okay, if they really were like grasshoppers, they'd be like 300 times bigger, all right? They're not saying that. They're just saying, these are giants. It gives me the impression that these Nephilim were pretty big guys. And you can understand, you got an, you got a God for a dad and a human for a mom, and you got this offspring that's just not normal, alright? Now the two passages quoted above are the only places, 
Genesis 6, 4, Numbers 13, 33, where this word, Hebrew word Nephilim is used. But what surprises some Bible readers is that this is not the only place the Nephilim are talked about in Scripture. The Nephilim has a theological thread that begins in Genesis 6 and goes all the way through to the New Testament. Some say Nephilim were simply mighty warriors who happened to be around during the time before and after the flood. In other words, it has nothing to do with the context of the passage. They just, people, God just threw that in there. Oh yeah, there was Nephilim around too. Now come on, really? This view makes nonsense of the text. You insert the word Nephilim that has no context to it at all? Listen, the pericope of verses 1 through 4 are a lead into the proclamation of the flood in verses 5 through 8. The contextual reading of this concise unit of text begins talking about sexual union of sons of God and daughters of men. Right? Then it makes a reference to God's announcement to destroy the world in 120 years. There, there's a sexual thing and then God's going to destroy them because of it, right? Which references the Nephilim in context that judgment's going to happen to. And then it bookends the pericope with a reference back to the supernatural sexual union again thus linking everything between those bookends as a parenthetical explanation of what it was all about, which leads to the flood in verses 5 through 8. So what does the Hebrew word Nephilim mean? Well, some scholars look at the root word and they claim it means fallen ones. Nephal means to fall. But there's a problem. And that is that the Septuagint, which is sometimes quoted by the New Testament authors as authoritative, translates this word as giants. Now, this is significant, people, because did those ancient Hellenized Jews not know the true meaning of the word? Did they not know what Nephilim meant? So they just said, let's stick a word in there. How about giants? No, they understood. They knew something we don't. Most all ancient Jewish sources understand this term to mean giant. And I think that's kind of significant. Some people say, I don't believe in giants. I don't care. It's in the Bible. You don't have to believe in it. You don't have to believe anything that's in the Bible. But don't just be ignorant and say, I don't believe in giants. Deal with the text. They believed in giants. They, that's how they translate this word. There are also some Second Temple Jewish texts that tell us very clearly that these were giants. We already saw in Enoch. That Enoch translates it giants. Well, Jubilees 5.1 says, And when the children of man began to multiply on the surface of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the angels of the Lord saw that they were very good to look at. These women must have been attractive. I mean, they got the eye of these gods, all right? And they took wives for themselves from all of those whom they chose, and they bore children for them, and they were giants. Gigantus in the Greek. All right, they're giants. That's Listen, again, Jubilees is not Scripture. Jubilees is contemporary with the first century, and this is how the Jews understood these things. This is kind of a commentary on the text. Josephus, you're all familiar with him? He says, For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. But the tradition is that these men did what resembles the acts of those whom the Grecians call Giants. Now, again, biblical and A&E scholar Michael Heiser has revealed a biblical reference that proves that Nephilim are giants, not fallen ones. In his article, The Meaning of the Word Nephilim, Fact versus Fantasy, 
He explains that Hebrew is a consonantal language, which means it only spells words with consonants, leaves the reader to fill in the vowels. Well, the ancient language of Aramaic is also consonantal and has an influence on the Hebrew text at various places. There are many Aramaic words in the Bible, and some chapters, such as Daniel 2-7, through are written in Aramaic. In later copies, vowel markers are added to the consonants in order to aid in pronunciation. All right? Heiser explains that the Hebrew word nephal, which is translated in English as nephilim, has different meanings depending on the morphology or form of the word. Evidently, the morphological form of the word in Genesis and Numbers is not that of the Hebrew meaning fallen ones, but of the Aramaic meaning giants. And the Bible clinches this argument in Numbers 13, 31, Heiser says. He shows that the first spelling here of Nephilim in this verse is the Hebrew spelling. But the second spelling of Nephilim is a variation that is clearly Aramaic spelling of giants. And there really shouldn't be any argument about this because the text says we're like, they're giants, we're like grasshoppers. It describes the Anakim, who were descendants of the Nephilim and became gigantic in stature so that they felt like grasshoppers. Now, the Anakim, or sons of Anak, are unquestionably defined as giants throughout the Bible because of their tall height. One of the most famous of the Anakim is who? Goliath. A big guy. A really, really big guy, right? Philistia had a big problem with these Anakim giants. According to 1 Chronicles 20, attest to no less than four of them that had to be killed by David's mighty men in a campaign against these giants. But if we go back from David to Joshua in the conquest of the promised land, we see that the giant Anakim that David were fighting were merely the leftovers from Joshua's own campaign to wipe them out. Joshua 11.21 says, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of Israel. It seems inevitable that every time I convince somebody that they ought to read through their Bible every year, the first time they do, it's very upsetting to them. God's killing everybody! This is why. This is why God said when you go in, you wipe out all of them. Women, children, you wipe out everything. Why? He's trying to wipe out this hybrid race. That is the point of this. As it turns out, The Anakim were not the only giants in the land. Evidently, the land in and around Canaan was crawling with giants. They're called by different names. Now, some say that the text blames humanity on the flood, not the watchers. Because I said, you know, that the flood primarily was to wipe out these Nephilim. But people say, well, no, the text says that's not the, that's not what it's about. Look at, they'll go to Genesis 6, 5. Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So they say, see, the flood was, because man was wicked, had nothing to do with watchers. But Genesis 6.3 says, nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years, speaking of the judgment because of the watcher's sin. Also, Enoch says the flood was sent because of the watchers. Now, the voluntary sexual transgression of the women with the watchers was a violation of the heaven and earth which caused the humans to share the blame. And I think the wickedness of man that this text talks about 
was the sexual union with the watchers. Yes, men were wicked. They're joining in this thing that's unnatural. And so Yahweh judges the world. Now, if one of the main purposes of the flood was to wipe out the hybrid race, I think one of its main purpose was, then why do we see giants after the fall? They escaped. Someone said, well, it was a local flood and they just walked up to the hill and missed it. I don't think so. Look at the text, Genesis 6, 4. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. This is referring to after the flood. The Hebrew word bo here came in as a euphemism for sexual relations. The verb is in the imperfect form which denotes uncompleted ongoing action. The ensuing verb, bore children, is in a construction known as a narrative sequence, meaning it carries the same action as the preceding verb. This answers the question, how do you get giants after the flood? The grammar of the text indicates that the activity that created the giants was ongoing. Well, I thought Yahweh judged those watchers. He did. I guess some more just decided to come down and try it also. And they got judged. This happened before the flood. It happened after the flood. And this is why Yahweh told Israel to wipe out these different cultures. They were destroying these hybrids. And if you read some of the pseudepigrapher literature, it is amazing some of the things that are said. You know, and, and let me throw this out there. You can do what you will with it. I think a lot of the myths and legends we have come from reality. All right? You go to Rome and you got the Titans, right? These half men, half God. Did they just make that up? I don't know. I think they might come from reality. Some of the pseudepigrapher works talk about these Nephilim as vampire-like, blood-sucking creatures. Again, did this, where did this legend come from about vampires? Where did all these things come from? Maybe there's some reality there. But the pseudepigrapher give us great insight into some of these things. And, you know, whether you want to believe it or not, it's, it's interesting stuff. All right. And again, this is the, the belief system of the Jews at that time. All right. Notice what Yeshua says in the Olivet Discourse. He says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Well, during the time of Christ was on earth, there was a lot of demonic activity, just like in Noah's time. A lot of demonic activity that was destroyed, they were destroyed by the flood. Well, in Yeshua's day, they were destroyed in AD 70. Now, <clears throat> you find it hard to believe that angelic watchers came down, mated with women, and produced hybrid offspring? Sounds like a stretch, doesn't it? But have you ever heard of the Incarnation? But see, we're so used to the incarnation that we don't think it's strange because we've heard it all our lives, but we never heard this all our lives. Well, look at the text. Mary said to the angel, how can, you know, hey, Mary, guess what? You're pregnant. Ah, uh, excuse me. I've never been with a man in my life. You know, how's this happen? How can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be born, called the Son of God. See, Yahweh had an offspring with a human woman and produced the Savior of mankind, Yeshua. And these gods are literally falsifying this in their coming in and having relations with the woman. Now, let me see if I can put this whole story together for you as I understand it. 
the watchers, the divine council, is the family of God. All right, God meets with his family. They're talking about different things. We see this in the scripture. All right, God decides, I'm going to bring man into my family. So he takes man and he brings him into the garden. Now, the garden was sacred space, temple imagery. This is the temple of God. The garden is the dwelling place of God. He brings man into his sacred space. Now man is part of the family of God. And the watchers are like, "Uh uh-uh. We don't like this man coming in here. Okay? We don't like this at all. So what happens? Satan, Lucifer, the shining one, the throne guardian, goes and talks to man and says, hey, well, you know, this is not right. He deceives man and gets him kicked out of the garden. So now man's back. He's out of sacred space now. Well, then God says, i got a plan. All right? Uh, The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. All right, so they're like, oh, a seed, okay? So there's going to come a seed. So then they say, we got to corrupt the line. Let's go down, have sex with them, we'll corrupt the whole line so this seed cannot come. Well, they failed. God sent the flood, wiped out a bunch of them. The wars continued, wiped out this hybrid race. But inevitably, the God-man came through a pure line and provided redemption for the elect of God. And now, God's elect are back in the sacred space. And Paul says, don't you know that you will judge angels? Because we are the family of God now. We are in God's sacred space. And guess what, people? We'll never get kicked out. We'll never be deceived. We'll never leave this garden. We are the family of God. So the story ends on a very, very positive note. All right? Back in sacred space where God wanted us to be as the family of God. And the watchers are judged. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, Lord. Sometimes it's it's just hard for us to grasp. You know, things seem so very different from our own understanding. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the heart of Bereans. We would not accept this. We would not reject this. But we would study to see if these things are so. We'd compare scripture with scripture. We'd look at other cultures and see how they define these things. We'd just look at the language of the text, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you continually provided a way for us to be with you in your temple, dwelling in your presence. Lord, we rejoice in that. Thank you for your love for us. Amen.